Captain Samuel Fish. Captain Moses Fish. Alexander Freeland and Friedrich Bloom. Certainly men and names that you have never heard of and you're never going to remember. But these men and our family, they're revered. They fought in the French and Indian War. They fought in the Revolutionary War. And both of them, Alexander Freeland and Friedrich Bloom, fought in the Civil War. The Civil War was a, a fascinating war because the demands of the kingdom, of the Confederacy and both of the Union, would cause father to fight against son, son to fight against father, and brother would slay his own brother. Why? For the sake of the kingdom. That's why we hear stories of these men when you grow up, sitting on grandpa's knee because they forsook it all to go be cannoneers in Vicksburg, to leave Norway and go fight for the North because they thought it was audacious that one man would own another. And they would give it all up, and they would go and fight. How much more then, friends, will the demands of the kingdom of heaven be upon their disciples then, a kingdom of man be upon their followers. How much more will Jesus Christ expect of his disciples? With that in mind, let us turn to our text. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verses 34 and going down to 42. If you would stand with me out of the reverence for the word of God. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verses 34, going down to 42. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will not lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we see this text and it is daunting. 
God, it is truly daunting, the task that you have laid before us and the demands that you have laid upon us, God. I pray that we would not be cold in our hearts to what you have commanded us, what you do demand of us, but God, I pray in your spirit that you would also give us hope. Hope as we cast ourselves upon you and find grace when we fall short and your love where we don't deserve it, God. Could you show that to us in this time? Amen. Brief outline of where we're going to be going. The main point that I want to just drive home is that Jesus Christ demands, Jesus Christ demands your absolute allegiance. There's no way around it. Jesus Christ demands your absolute allegiance. First, we're going to see that in the expectations of the kingdoms. Jesus Christ is coming. What should we expect when he comes? Well, that's going to be verses 34 through 36. And then in verses 37 down to 39, we're going to be this, looking at the sacrifice. What is demanded of those who claim to be disciples, those who want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, what's expected of them? And that's going to be the main thrust. That's where we're going to settle for quite a bit of the sermon. Then finally, we're going to be briefly looking at verses 40 to 42, which is the reward. Is this just suffering for suffering's sake, or is there something else out there? Is it worth it to be a disciple? Is it worth it to sacrifice and give everything up to be a member of the kingdom of heaven? Let's look at this first section here, the expectations. Let's go back to the text, verses 34 through 36. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies, man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And throughout the Gospels, what we've been seeing is that what Jesus Christ brings and what the people are expecting are very different. See this in the Sermon on the Mount. Who is blessed? Well, we expect it to be those who keep the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, those with uh, re religious and political clout. They're the ones that are blessed. No, 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 no. The poor in spirit, the downtrodden, the meek, the oppressed those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the ones that are blessed. And you also see this, this, this separation between what people expect and what Jesus does in who he picks for his disciples. He could have gone to the best rabbinic schools, picked the best students, brought them to follow him. No, 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 what does he do? It's fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. Well, that, that looks pretty good. I'll take them. So what we expect and what he does, vastly different. And we see this life of discipleship that we've been seeing in chapter 10. We've been here for several weeks, just taking our time, going over this. What does it look like to be a disciple? What does it look like to be part of the kingdom of heaven? What's expected? But Jesus, he first calls them to himself calls them by name, and in the, he gives them authority, the same authority that he has received from God the Father, he gives to them. 
And then he sends them out. He is the good shepherd and he's called these sheep to himself. But then he sends them out. As Adam pointed out, he sends them out amongst the wolves. And then they have the message. Again, the same message that John the Baptist was proclaiming. Same message that Jesus Christ had. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is their message as well. But what are they to expect? Are the crowds going to cheer for them? Are they going to be you know, a bunch of Galileans being slain in the spirit up there? Is that what they expect? No, what are they to expect? They're going to be flogged. They're going to be betrayed. They're going to be the objects of hatred. And up to this point, throughout chapter 10, it's been a largely about what's going to happen, how others are going to oppress them. And now we get to these verses and we see the internal sacrifices that one must make, the, etern- the internal sacrifices that you must make if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the eternal kingdom. Well, what's expected? What's this personal sacrifice that you are to make? That's what we see in our text. First, you see that the establishment of this kingdom is not through the sowing of peace. ESV, they say, the, I did not come to bring peace. It's the same word a, a farmer would use as he's just casting his seed, throwing seed. And Jesus didn't come to just throw peace over the existing kingdom. No, no, no. Because he comes and he's brandishing a sword. And make no mistake, this is the language of a revolution. This is the language of a revolution. These are the words of a man who is starting a revolution that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that it will conquer. And it's coming forth with a sword. And it makes sense that the people wanted peace and they were expecting peace. What did the prophets tell him? He's going to be the king of peace. He's going to come. Read Isaiah 9. The government will be upon his shoulders. Almighty God, eternal Father. He's going to bring peace. But as Christians, we know that the new cannot fit into the old. That a new paradigm has come. Jesus also said that you have new wine. It can't patch the old wineskin. No, it must go into a new wineskin. So as Christians, when we look at this text, we must never confuse the effects of the kingdom with how others will react with it. So that is, the effects of the kingdom will ultimately be peace. How do others react to it? Well, that's a different story. So, he's going to come, and Jesus Christ comes with a sword. How is this kingdom going to advance? This kingdom is like every other kingdom. It's going to advance with the sword. It will conquer with the sword. Is it literal? Well, we see Peter cutting off Malchus's ear with a literal sword. The servant of the high priest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus rebukes him. So we know it's not a literal sword, but what is it? It's truth. It's love. It's the cross. It's suffering. And it's 
this sword of truth that will come and it will divide. And this kingdom, it has such a high call that it will divide even families. And this is these demands of this kingdom that are so high that they'll even divide families. It's not new to Jesus Christ. You see this in the Old Testament. So Jesus quotes uh, Micah 7 when he says, For I have come, quote, now I've come to turn, quote, a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household, is what he quotes from Micah. And remember, as we, to be good students of the Bible, when we see a, a, a quote from the Old Testament, to be good students, we want to, one, understand the original context. What's going on in Isaiah? What's going on in Micah 7 that we're going to look at now? And then through that lens, we're going to look and see, how does this point to Christ? How is this fulfilled in Christ? How does this point to the kingdom of heaven, which is now at hand? So at Micah 7, Micah, he's a contemporary of Isaiah. He's in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he's telling the people in Jerusalem, like so many other prophets, repent, repent, repent. The day of judgment is coming. The Assyrians are going to come, and they come in 701. The Babylonians are going to come, and they come in 605 and 586. And they come, and they bring utter destruction. And so bad is this invading kingdom that even families are going to be divided. The invasion of the Babylonians is so complete so thorough that everything is destroyed, even families. They turn on each other for food. They turn on each other to try to escape. Parents would eat their own children. That's the devastation of this invading army coming. Repent, repent, repent. And right after this verse, so... Micah says, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Next verse. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then Micah begins to prophesy and tell us about this kingdom that will come. Though this physical kingdom may go away, but there's this kingdom to come where other nations will, quote, turn in fear to the Lord our God and will be afraid of you. And ultimately, this coming kingdom, you will have a God who pardons sins and forgives transgressions. And here is Christ saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the very kingdom that Micah was looking forward to. And Jesus is quoting this, saying, so great were the demands that of this Babylonian invasion, that it would divide even families, even so, the kingdom of heaven, the demands are going to be so great for you, the call is going to be so high, that your families may even be divided. Man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her, their father-in-law. I hope you are beginning to see the expectations that Jesus Christ is bringing forth here. This, this Christ has come and the light is shining in the darkness and the effects of the kingdom. And the light shines in the darkness and how does the darkness react? 
It hates the light. The Apostle John put it this way in John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates. Remember, you're going to be flogged. You're going to be betrayed. You're going to be the object of hate. Your families will be divided. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. And these are the expectations. They think he's going to come and bring peace. They've been longing for peace. And what does Jesus Christ say? No, 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 I'm coming not with peace, but with the sword. That was them. What about you? What do you, what do you expect when you're coming here to church? What do you expect to hear? Peace? 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 It's all going to be fine? You're going to have a great life? A little bit of prosperity? Not as much to look foolish like those guys, but a little bit of prosperity to encourage everybody all the time? No, my friends. The kingdom is great, and the call to the kingdom will cost you everything. So Jesus Christ has laid this before them. And now we'll turn to these next verses and we're going to see, it's pretty interesting, Jesus Christ, he quotes this. Now we're going to see how he actually applies the text. How does Jesus Christ apply this text to the disciples' lives and then to your lives? So let's get, read verses 37 through 39 here. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Christ has put forth the demands of his kingdom. Who is worthy? Who is worthy of this kingdom? You have a little test here. Test yourself. You see in verse 37, we'll, we'll, we'll go back over it, but in 37 we see affections. 38 we're going to be looking at sacrifice. In 39, your life. God demands all of it. Verse 37 here. Any affection that you have, any affection that you have for someone or something that is greater than your affection for God reveals that you do not love God. Quite frankly, you don't love Him. It's not that you just don't love Him quite enough. No, you don't love Him. You are not worthy of Him. You are not worthy of Him. You see this in the Old Testament also, where God also demanded everything and absolute allegiance to the kingdom. Deuteronomy 13. Someone entices you away from God and away from the kingdom. They say, no, 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 come. Let's go worship these idols. Even though they're your son or your daughter 
or the wife whom you love, Moses writes, or even the closest of your friends. What are you to do? You are to be the first one to pick up a stone and stone them. The demands of the kingdom of God have not changed. He demands everything from your life and all of your affections. But sure, we, we do love our parents and we love our children. But God demands of us that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This demand is never made of anything else except for God. You notice here, before we move on, this qualifier here, anyone. Which certainly maybe Jesus just meant this for his disciples, those apostles, those those radical missionaries who go off and do wonderful things that we read about in church history. Certainly he just meant them, right? No, 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 no. Anyone. You. Here. Now. You. As you hold your newborn baby, the demand is there of you that you must love God more. Certainly we love our children. We admonish them to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's a song our children are singing often, sometimes forcibly. They have to sing it. And we train them and we love them. But it's, in, it's nothing in comparison to God and His demands that He has placed upon us. Verse 38, whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This, my friends, is active obedience. This is not just passive obedience where we wait for the troubles of life to come and kind of navigate them well. No, no, no. This is active obedience as we seek to conform every aspect of our life, every aspect of our life into the image of Christ. Paul writes that as we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are transformed from one image, from into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. This is the mark of the Christian life, that we are progressing, becoming more and more and more like Christ. And oftentimes it's through sacrifice and taking up your cross and following Him. Thankfully, our Messiah, as we look to Him, as we gaze upon Him and fix our eyes upon Him, this path is a well-trodden path. It's the path that our Messiah has walked. It's the path that the saints of old have walked. It's a path that is red with the blood of martyrs who did take up their cross and follow Him. You see, our Messiah, he had no place to, to lay his head. You see, our, our Messiah is a man who was forsaken by his own family. This call to love him above your parents, above your sons and daughters. Well, yeah, he, he walked that path as well. Read Mark 3. His family, he's in, ministering in 
uh, the Sea of Galilee. His family comes up from Jerusalem. Why? Because they thought he was, quote, out of his mind. They thought he was crazy. Here's this, their son walking around claiming to be God, doing miracles. They have to go investigate. What's going on? Yeah, he was betrayed by his own family. And a family divided along the lines of the gospel is a reality, and it is painful. I, I know I can't think of, of one family where all of the children are adults. And they all believe. We have a lot of young kids here. Parents, this is the call to love God above your children. Maybe your house will be divided along the lines of the gospel. But you, in this pain, even though it's anguish, you stay faithful to the gospel. You don't throw it asunder because your children don't repent. You stay faithful to the gospel and admonish your children and then call them to repent year after year after year until you come into glory. Because you know if given the choice between God and your children, you must and you will, and the disciple always will, choose God. But your reward will be great. We'll cover this later in the sermon, but it's painful now as your homes are divided along the lines of the gospel. And it's anguish. Never let your allegiance to your children dissuade you from loving God. Never let the reality of His coming judgment, perhaps judgment upon your children, dissuade you from loving God with all of your heart. It's painful, but you will have your reward. And you will be faithful to Him as He has been faithful to you. So our, our Messiah, He had no place to lay His head. He, he had His own family. He was forsaken by them. And this King of all kings, He has a radiating crown of what? thorns. The man who created everything has a radiating crown of thorns. And what's his robe? A nice glorious purple robe. Wasn't even his, which was soon red because of his lashings. And then you see the first example of explicit worship. And what are they doing? They're mocking him. Hail, hail, King of the Jews. This is our Messiah. This is a life of discipleship. Momentary afflictions. But why would we expect anything less? Why would we expect anything less than this glorious call to forsake it all and follow Him? So moving on. So not only will it cost you your affections, Loving Him more than your children, more than your parents, and the suffering of taking up your cross and following Him. Taking up your cross and following Him. 
but it will also cost you your life. The, the natural man, you, you think you have found your life, and you have all the comforts of the world and the esteems of men, but what you actually have, my friend, is a curse. Because you're comfortable, and you've settled for far less than the kingdom of God. So yeah, you think you've found your life, and, but you've actually you've lost it. So go ahead and enjoy it. These, these fleeting years, go ahead and, and be amused. Enjoy it now because it will end. And your righteous God that demands your life now to discipleship, when you die, He will demand it of you then. And you can give it now and be found in Christ. And have the riches of Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Or you can give your life later, eternally. But God will have your life, one way or the other. Before we move on here, let's allow me to put these verses in another way. To put, in our context, a, a little spin on these here. Anyone who loves their career more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their mindless amusement more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their social or financial status more than me is not worthy of me. Many of us have made sacrifice after sacrifice for our careers. For schooling, we stay up late. We wake up at 3 a.m. to study and cram, study and cram for your exam. You think nothing of leaving your parents to move across the country, to go to school, to get another job that's maybe another rung higher on the ladder. You uproot your children, forsaking them for what? For a career. But... When it comes to church, personal Bible study, yeah, I said it, personal Bible study, or a community group, anything comes up or is not convenient, okay, we'll throw it aside. Well, what are you showing? You value your career much more than you care about God and His kingdom. What's well, quite evident by the way you live. You've made sacrifice after sacrifice, moving across the country. We can't invite our neighbors into our homes to share the gospel, but Lord knows we'll move across the country for another title to be esteemed by men. If this is you, examine yourselves to see if you are worthy of Christ and His kingdom. Does your life exemplify someone who's willing to give up father or mother, son or daughter, to take up their cross or to lose their life for the sake of the gospel, for Christ and for His kingdom. These are difficult passages. I realize that. These are daunting passages. But our God will not be mocked by someone who is a half-hearted follower. He will not be mocked. He demands your absolute allegiance. 
In closing here, we see the, the main idea. Jesus Christ demands your absolute allegiance. And we expect peace when he comes, but no, he brings a sword. A sword that is truth and that divides families, divides even our own hearts. But we see the application of this in the section we just went over in 37 to 39. That it demands our affections, our sufferings, and even our lives. And this is difficult. But now we see that there is hope. Let's close with this, verses 40 to 42. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. The Christian life is not a call to suffering for suffering's sake. If you want that, there's other religions out there who exemplify that. The Christian life is a path of suffering to a greater reward. And the way of getting there might be hard. It will be hard, but the reward is Christ. And you will have them. So we see that this, this suffering, as we understand that as Christians, is the shedding off of the things of this world. Some good, some bad. Shedding off our affections if they get in the way of loving Christ. Sometimes God takes our help. That we might walk this path. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. That those are the ones who are blessed. And we are blessed when we suffer. Not for suffering's sake. But so that we might find Christ. And delight in Him and in Him alone. This is the reward. This is the key to it all. Is it worth it? This, this light momentary affliction which is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension, is it worth it? And this is your reward to stand before God and behold Him in all of His beauty and all of His glory. And if this is not a delight to you, that you're willing to sacrifice everything to behold God throughout of eternity, to sing of His glory and of His praise, that you're not willing for this light momentary affliction to set aside your affections, to set aside some suffering, to even set aside your life for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God, to behold His glory, then tremble in fear, my friend, because you are not worthy. You are not worthy. But for the true disciples, we joyfully bow down before Him and we lay at His feet our affections, our families, our sufferings, and even our lives, that as we bow down before Him, we might behold His beauty. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have hope 
in you, God. I pray that you would make it abundantly clear to us how we are to set aside everything that is distracting us from you, God. I pray that we would be enamored with your beauty and your grace, that we would want nothing but you, God. pray that you would comfort us under the weight of such difficult truth. I pray that this truth would conform us to love you more and to proclaim your glory and your grace. All the much for you. Amen.